0: Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps and from the online website. From Community Broadcasting Services, the talking newspaper for Coventry. This is Outlook.
1: Hello and uh, welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, to this week's edition of Outlook, which is being recorded on Wednesday the 9th of November. And in this week's programme, Margaret will be touring Draper's Hall. And with Bonfire Night just passed, we learn more about the gunpowder plot. Having just put the clocks back one hour, Sheila investigates the pros and cons of changing the clocks twice a year. Michael Ball, the singer-actor, has written a book about his passion for theatre. And Elaine reads an article about its origins. Ali returns with another of her light-hearted short stories. And Dave catches up with Karen Bucknell, who he interviewed previously, to find out what she's been doing since. And, of course, there's all the uh, local news from the centre, sport, and, of course, your postbag. But, as ever, we start this week's local news with Elaine and myself.
0: Outlook News.
2: BBC Coventry in Warwickshire is set to share a programme with stations more than 60 miles away due to national cuts. The radio station, based in Coventry City Centre, will broadcast a show shared with Hereford and Worcester and Shropshire on weekday afternoons, the local Democracy Reporting Service understands. It will keep its own breakfast and mid-morning shows from 6am to 2pm, but other shows will be lost amid plans to strip back local BBC radio programming to just ten shows across the UK from 6pm to 10pm, followed by an All England show. The changes come as part of cuts to local BBC services across the UK, confirmed by the corporation. Rodri Talfin-Davis, BBC Director of Nations, said... These proposals aim to maintain the distinctiveness of our local services while allowing the BBC to adapt with our audiences and ensure we remain relevant. Taken together, they will ensure our network of local services across TV, radio, online and sounds offer more value for audiences. Of course, real change is never easy. And we will work closely with all our colleagues to introduce these plans sensitively and fairly. The news has been met with dismay by people in the city. Professor Helen Wheatley, Director of Film and Television Studies at the University of Warwick, tweeted, Really terrible news. BBC CWR has worked so hard to serve our community in the widest, most inclusive sense. Stuart Linnell was a presenter when Coventry and Warwickshire's first local radio station, Mercia Sound, launched in 1980, and later worked for the BBC, Radio Northampton and CWR. The semi-retired broadcaster, aged 75 now, told the local democracy reporting service, I am in no doubt that local radio, when done properly and managed properly, can be the lifeblood of local communities. BBC CWR is managed very well, he added. They do so many things. They've got a very good news team. We know there are problems with local media across the board, but people really want local news. They want to know what's going on in their patch. He praised the station's coverage of important local stories and said reporters had done a fantastic job. To think that we could lose it would be a tragedy, he added. It threatens to be a complete loss of local democracy if we're not careful. Holding people to account, whether it's the local MP or local council, has never been more important with all that's been happening nationally.
1: Coventry residents are rejoicing over a £1 million investment into local communities and charities that has been described as a lifesaver. Coventry Building Society is donating the sum to dozens of organisations in the city to address the cost of living crisis. With spiralling energy costs and increasing food prices, many people are struggling to get by. Food banks and social supermarkets are a lifeline for many low-income families. Out of the £1 million support package, 200,000 will be donated to Coventry's 15 social supermarkets through the Coventry Food Network. Dudley Stringer, 79, has praised the extra support, calling it a lifesaver to people who need it the most. The 79-year-old, who also volunteers at the shop, relies on the social supermarket after struggling with rising costs of food in recent weeks. Dudley said he could not only afford to spend £10 a week on grocery shopping, which would leave him with little food to get by. He said, I had a few debts at the time with COVID, but then the cost of living suddenly went up. I was spending a lot less on food, so the social supermarket was a lifesaver. I've been relying on the social supermarket for the last five weeks, and I think that this funding, things are are hopefully going to improve shortly. Coventry Building Society's £1 million funding package will be allocated to schools, food banks, social supermarkets, youth groups, citizens' advice and charities for the homeless and elderly across the city. The £1 million donation also includes 250000 for food and emergency support in every school in Coventry, 200000 for Coventry's 15 social supermarkets through a Coventry Food Network, and 115000 for the charity Act on Energy, and 100000 for the Heart of England Community Foundation Cost of Living Appeal. Anna Cuskin of Coventry Building Society said, We already support many of these schools and charities with funding, resources and volunteers. But the cost of living crisis is making lives harder and we wanted to do more to help those who need it most. That's why we've given the additional one million to the people and organisations who know how to spend it most efficiently including 100, including 1,000 to each of our 65 branches, which will be no, donated to local food banks from Sheffield
2: to Somerset. Construction is well underway on a super hub in Coventry that will play an integral role in supporting the UK's transition to renewable energy. The new battery site will be capable of powering 100,000 homes with clean energy for two hours, according to an energy company. EDF Renewables UK says the new hub will also support the decarbonisation of energy and transport across the UK. In addition, it says it will help the integration of renewables in the UK by storing energy when supply is abundant and discharging it when supply is lower. Matthew Bolton, director at EDF Renewables UK, said... Transport and energy are the UK's two most polluting sectors. Our energy superhub model helps to cut emissions from both at the same time, scaling up renewable energy and clean transport to accelerate a net zero future. Construction work started in August when the site was still owned by Pivot Power. That company has now been acquired by EDF, which deferred an announcement about the Superhub until the integration had been finalised. The site's lithium-ion battery, delivered by global technology company Watzilla, will be directly connected to the UK's high-voltage transmission network. In addition, the Superhub will facilitate an electric vehicle charging network, with multi-megawatts of power to strategic charging locations around the city. The site, which is expected to be live next year, will replicate that rolled out by EDF in Oxford earlier this year and is one of up to 40 similar projects being developed across the country. EDF says the Coventry base will play an integral role in supporting the UK's transition to renewable energy. The government has announced plans to decarbonise the UK power system by 2035. Energy storage through grid-scale batteries is needed to provide short-term flexibility to balance the intermittency of supply from renewable energy. This model forms a key pillar of EDF's plan to develop an additional 10 GW of battery storage globally by 2035. Jim O'Boyle of Coventry City Council said, Coventry has always been a city at the forefront of innovation, from leading the way in car manufacturing to driving the green industrial revolution today. We're pleased to work with EDF Renewables, which will help power homes with cleaner energy, decarbonise transport and improve air quality. This will complement our plans for a greener travel in the city, including very light rail, and to completely electrify Coventry's bus fleet by 2025.
1: Extra cash is needed for a major recycling facility in Coventry, which will also take waste from Nuneaton and Bedworth. The material recycling facility is a project between eight local councils, including Coventry City Council and Nuneaton and Bedworth Borough Council. It's no secret the project has run massively over budget. It was originally estimated to cost £34.5 million and then it was revealed that this rose by more than £20 million. Now, and Bedworth Borough Council has already put in over £4 million into the project as it, will see, as it will see all of the borough's recycling taken to the new facility in Coventry. But now the Town Hall is being asked to contribute more according to a cabinet report. It says the overall capital budget requirement to complete the project has increased by 4.9%. To help cover this increase, the local authority is being asked for a further loan of £234,000 towards the scheme. Construction of the facility has been underway since May 2021 and is due to be complete and fully operational by the end of summer 2023, the Cabinet report states. Civil works are due to be largely complete on-site by the end of this month with a secondary period scheduled for spring, early summer next year to include a comprehensive fire protection system. The installation of mechanical and electrical process equipment has now commenced and will conclude ahead of the civil works recommencement on-site. Following the completion of the procurement exercise the initial capital budget for the project was set at £62.2 This budget is made up of several elements, construction costs, process equipment costs, the budget to establish SRL, including the various professional fees, and an amount for capitalised interest. Each partner council committed to meet the capital funding requirements of the project in proportion to the amount of recyclable waste which they anticipated sending to the facility for processing. The annual tonnage was based on previous recycling performance and was captured by the waste supply agreement signed by each partner council. It concludes, while there have been many improvements to the overall budget position, there have also been several areas where costs have, been, uh, have risen, including additional construction costs, delay damages, foreign exchange rates, utility costs, professional and legal fees, staffing costs, higher ICT costs and significantly higher insurance premiums. Between them, the increase in annual insurance premiums and the fall in the value of the pound alone make up 70% of the additional cost pressures on the project. Cabinet members will meet today, Wednesday, to decide whether to rubber stamp the extra spend.
2: Communications Company 3 want to build a 15-metre mast and equipment cabinets on Hollyhead Road near Spon End. It's proposed to go outside the Sitner car dealership on a verge 92 metres from the nearest residential property, but Coventry City Council has received ten representations and five letters objecting. Locals raise concerns about radiation, health and safety, the visual impact and scale of the mast. There are also fears the structure could devalue people's homes. Officers at the council, however, are recommending the mast is approved. They say it's acceptable in principle and falls within the criteria of relevant policies. A council report acknowledged the mast will be significantly higher than other structures nearby, but the author added, The proposal will have limited adverse impact upon the visual amenity of the area. The mast won't be in view of people's homes or affect sight lines on the junction. The report also stressed that a new 5G mast will have benefits for the surrounding area. It states, The provision of an improved signal to deliver 5G coverage in the area will contribute to delivering a modern, advanced, high-quality and reliable communications infrastructure that supports a range of consumers, including the emergency services. Council officers concluded that the social and economic benefits of the proposal would outweigh visual harm. A spokesperson for Three previously told the local Democracy Reporting Service... While we try to keep mass sites as unobtrusive as possible, they do need to be situated near to where people will be using the service and, in many cases, in precise locations to ensure the widest breadth of coverage.
1: Working people across the UK should keep, keep more of their money than they earned from this week. A change in national insurance contributions will result in a cash boost for households. Contributions rose by 1.25% points in April, but this has been reversed, taking effect from November the 6th. The temporary rise was brought in to increase funding for the NHS and social care. When added to July's increase in national insurance thresholds, the tax cut mean, cuts mean almost 30 million people will be better off on next year, meaning that some people could get more than £500 pounds extra over the next 12 months. The changes will also save 920,000 businesses on average of almost £10,000. Pounds. According to the government, this means that on average people will see about £330 back in their pay over the course of the year. Working people will begin receiving the tax cut directly in their pay slips this month, though it may be delayed for some employees until December or January, but all working people are expected to be, re- be receiving it by February. The cancellation of the health and social care levy was announced by then-Chancellor Kwazi Kwatung on September the 22nd. The Treasury has said funding for health and social care services will be maintained at the same level as if the levy levy were still in
2: place. How much everyone will get depends on how much they earn. A Coventry firm says this has launched a UK first trial to send supplies between two hospitals by drone. Air-based medical drone deliveries are being made between University Hospital, Coventry and Warwickshire Trust Hospital in Coventry and Rugby. Skyfarer Limited, which is based in Coventry, and partner Medical Logistics UK, have begun a collaborative medical drone delivery beyond visual line of sight trial. This trial is the first of its kind as it is over land, between two NHS Trust hospitals in a hub centric network and operates around the clock. Its aim is ultimately to help ease pressures on the NHS and help hospitals receive vital time sensitive medical supplies with the use of drones. Georgia Hanrahan, project manager for Skyfarer, said As a result of significant road congestion and heavy infrastructure, We believe the use of drones can help support medical deliveries and speed up the process. There are no potholes in the sky, nor is there as much congestion. And without the need for heavy infrastructure to land, unmanned aerial vehicles can add to the fleet of logistical transfers and provide a faster, more sustainably friendly and cheaper solution. Skyfarer was founded in 2017 by Elliot Parnham an aerospace and engineering graduate from Coventry University, with the aim of using drones for good in society, with the first of its projects being medical drone delivery. The three-month trial is being sponsored and made possible by London-based Medical Couriers, Medical Logistics UK, which provides time-sensitive medical deliveries and personalised on-demand medical tests. Alex Lendersky, Managing Director at Medical Logistics, said, I welcome our new partnership as an opportunity to revolutionise the UK medical supply chain. With our emission-free solution, this UK first trial over land will conduct a record-breaking number of routine and ad hoc medical deliveries.
1: Police are investigating a harrowing fatal incident at a Coventry train station. Emergency vehicles were dispatched to Kenley train station just before 1.15pm last Saturday following desperate reports of a casualty on the track Sadly the person was pronounced dead at the scene British Transport Police said two other people might have been on the track at the time A horrified passenger on the train said the deceased was believed to be a teenage girl though their identity has not yet been confirmed The passenger, who recalled how the train braked hard, added, I can't stop thinking about the poor family. A British Transport Police uh, spokesman said, inquiries are ongoing to establish the identity of the person and the circumstances leading up to the death, and officers are appealing for anyone who was at Canley Railway Station before 1.15 last Saturday. Police say that two other people were on the track at Canley, Uh, train station when the woman died. And British Transport Police have said that a woman who they have not identified was pronounced dead at the scene on Saturday afternoon.
2: A Coventry Secondary School is undergoing a £3 million renovation to upgrade and expand the building. The work at Foxford School in Longford will see more sixth form classrooms created along with a new canteen, a new sports hall and an administration block. The administration block is a brand new building that will come fully equipped with conference centres for students in lectures. The canteen will be a state of the art food court with different stations offering students a variety of food and drink. The sports hall, which is now complete, comes with new sports apparatus in a modern and well-equipped facility. More classrooms will come with Apple TVs installed to aid children's learning. Phoenix Castle Trust has donated £2 million to the school's expansion project, while Coventry City Council has given £1 million. The school is being expanded to help it cater for its growing number of students. The number of sixth-form students entering the school this academic year has nearly doubled. Head teacher at Foxford School, Alison Gallagher, told Coventry Live, We've mainly remodelled the school because of growing numbers of pupils. We've gone from 96th-form students to over 160 this academic year. We've nearly doubled. Our canteen is being expanded to cater to over 400 students. We will have more classrooms, and now we've completed our new sports hall building because we want to invest in their fitness and health. The sports hall is now complete, and the administration block is due to be completed later this month. The sixth form building will be open for use around February next year, and the canteen will be fully operational by next Easter.
1: Coventry has one of the highest demands for doctors and dentists of any city in the UK, according to a new study. Research by dentist provider Long Vita revealed the top 10 UK cities with soaring demand for medical and dental care. The study analysed this based on Google research data. Coventry had the ninth highest demand with an average of 1,606 Google searches for every 100,000 people. This was 15% higher than the national average. Coventry residents made about 5,000 searches for doctors and dentists on Google each month with just under 4 in 5 searching for doctors on the web. Coventry had a far greater need for doctors compared to dentists and the city had the 7th highest demand for doctors but only the 18th for dentists in the UK. Reading has the greatest demand for doctors and dentists in the UK, the study showed. Locals there made an estimated 2,256 searches on average per 100,000 people. Birmingham ranked fifth highest in demand for doctors and dentists out of the 25 largest UK cities, with 1,893 searches per 100,000 people or 35% higher than the average. The second city, Birmingham, ranked fourth and fifth in terms of searches for dentists and doctors respectively.
2: And finally, not everyone may have heard the sad news that Leslie Phillips, famed for his timeless roles in the Carry On and Harry Potter films, has died. Mr Phillips passed away aged 98 after battling illness. The much-loved actor died on Monday and the veteran actor's sad death was announced on Tuesday. Leslie, who survived two strokes at the age of 90, is most famous for his film role in Carry On but many will remember him from the long-running radio comedy, The Navy Lark. He featured in dozens of other films, including Harry Potter, where he starred as the sassy sorting hat. Leslie Phillips also fought in the Second World War from 1943 as a second lieutenant in the Royal Artillery. Not in the Navy, as you might have guessed from his left hand down a bit it is, sir, in The Navy Lark
1: look news so that uh, concludes the uh, local news uh, around Coventry for this week and as ever the one and only announcements we ever have or seem to have these days is sunrise and sunset sunrise is now or will do Today, Wednesday, 7.16, and it disappears at 4.24 in the afternoon. It's only about another month—the shortest day, which is the good news. Uh, we now move on, as always, to Hugh, with news of the centre.
0: Hello, everyone. Well, we had a splendid November night at Earlton Park Village last Friday. The event was more than sold out, and the room very full. The audience loved visibly sound. And there were some great standout performances, including from Amy, who sang and also performed two of her lovely poems from Carol, who performed What a Wonderful World wonderfully and without the benefit of applica- amplification not that I, not that it made a difference. We had Elizabeth and her daughter, Jessica, playing some Greek uh, beautifully um, and Charlie, who plays just about every instrument and also rock the house singing Smoke on the Water. You know, my, my taste in music veers towards the classical, not much up with the modern popular beat combos, if you know what I mean. And in my head, it's a bit strange that something like Smoke on the Water gets people who are, should we say, ripe in years, going so much. Then I remember that it was released 50 years ago, and most of those in the room were mere striplings at the time. Anyway, there was definitely dancing. And then, of course, we have the wonderful words from the creative writing group. I was privileged to be one of the performers, joined by Anne Houston and uh, Jane Flavelle, directed by Richard Warren, with uh, group leader Jessica Eastman introducing each piece and what powerful pieces they were, poignant, often funny memoirs of days gone by, inspired by music, accomplished and thought-provoking poetry, imaginative short stories. The audience lapped it up. We will certainly be looking at doing more performances of new writing in the months ahead. As a side note, we still have some copies of the Creative Writing Group's first book, which is uh, available at £2.50, and also of Amy's uh, volume of poetry at £6. Uh, You can ask at reception for those. And, of course, it was a fundraiser for the Centre... And we made well over £600 on the night, which I'm very pleased about. But um, also importantly, we reached into a new audience, which I think will absolutely help us in the future. And my sincere thanks to everyone who took part. So our next fundraising extravaganza is the Winter Warmer, which takes place on Saturday the 3rd of December, just three weeks away, if you can credit it. It's all taking place in Boston Lodge this year with the craft stall, tombola and cakes and other stalls in the lounge and plenty of warming loveliness in the form of pork batches, soups and cake, along with our traditional Bailey's coffee and mulled wine. Uh, Those will be served in what was the dining room of Boston Lodge when it was a care home. In any case, follow the signs and the glorious scents. Uh, the charity shop will also be open, it's undergoing a bit of a refit just at the moment, expanding further into the back room, so there'll be more space and more terrific bargains to be had. And the marquee will be up outside for even more, you can't miss it. It runs from 11am um, to 3pm. Now we're still looking for things for the Tom if you'd be so kind, bottles and things that will fit in gift bags, and also commitments to make cakes for sale on the day, either for the table or for the cafe. If you're intending to offer some or know someone who is, please do let me know. Uh, you can call call the centre on 024-7671-7522. Uh, now, when you go into Boston Lodge Lounge, you'll see some new tables, uh, tilt-top jobbies that are uh, easy to move and set up. We got those last week. It's another step towards making that space more usable and comfortable for more groups. Now, it seems a little early to mention it, and I will let you know again, but uh, the centre will be closed over Christmas because, frankly, we all need the rest. (laughs) Uh, We'll be closing on Friday the 23rd of December in the afternoon, after yoga if that's running, um, and reopen on Tuesday the 3rd of January. I think that's it for this week, and I'll be back with you next week.
1: Thanks, Hugh. Now, as always, after Hugh, we changed tack completely. And now Sarah joins us to talk about sport for this week. Outlook Sport
3: Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to sport. Now, I must start with an apology to my great friend Sue Parker, Who used to present on this show Yes I know I said I wouldn't mention football But sometimes there is a result Which is so huge That it just has to be mentioned You know like when England won the World Cup in 1966 Or when England women won the European Championship in 2022 So I'm going to break my vow to you Sue This is it folks Watford nil Coventry City won Way. So why is that so fantastic? Well for seasons Watford have played in the Premiership And when a team is relegated It gets what is called a golden parachute. That is a nice lot of money so they can keep all their best players and hopefully regain promotion. Well, a mighty Sky Blues sure showed them for something. A great goal by Victor Jokeres five minutes into the second half sealed the win. Actually, I'm saying a great goal. To be honest, listeners, I didn't hear the match because it clashed with the World Gymnastics. And this time the World Gymnastics won. But I did listen to the last 10 minutes because I'm a sucker for punishment. I just have to have that white knuckle ride in the last 10 minutes when you're thinking, can we do it? Can we do it? And as usual... Our super goalkeeper was called on to make a fantastic save in about the 91st minute And the joke is Ben Wilson, our goalie, is only our number two goalie Or he was at the beginning of the season Okay Sue, I'm sorry, but it had to be done And now on to the main piece for today And that is the World Gymnastics Now, the World Gymnastics this year were really good because, I mean, apart from the gymnastics, because they were staged in this country, in Liverpool to be precise, so there was no getting up at silly o'clock in the morning or going to bed way, way, way too late and needing matchsticks to keep the eyes open the following day. And secondly, it was on the BBC, so it was really accessible. You didn't have to pay for subscriber TV. Now, when I was growing up, gymnastics, British gymnastics, was a bit of an embarrassment, to be honest. You know, all the other teams would be doing double-back somersaults and flicks and twists. We'd be doing a single back somersault and keeping everything crossed that we didn't fall off. And that was probably falling off the floor. But hey ho, how things have changed now. So the competition started after the initial qualification rounds with the teams. And the women won their first ever team world championship medal taking silver and I have to say the competitions were a bit of a again a white knuckle ride because this year the, the format was three gymnasts to compete per team or three to count so as well as previously a team could put forward four gymnasts with three to count and therefore you know, discard the ones that fell off or landed somewhere they shouldn't have, kind of thing. This time, you had to count. So we got silver, and then the men got bronze. Now I'm sure in advance the men would have been a bit diff- disappointed with bronze, but they were in last place at half time having had an absolute nightmare on the pommel horse. Now the great thing is, this means that both have qualified for the Olympics. In fact, even more amazing, we are the only place in the world to have qualified both the men's and women's teams for the Olympics already. So we know two years in advance that we are going to the Olympics. Hmm. Yes. The only team in the world. Because America, America won the gold in the women's and Canada the bronze. And in the men's, it was China and Japan. Wow, haven't things changed? So, then it was on to the women's individual competition where an indiv- where a woman competes on all four pieces of apparatus. And we had two competitors in this, Jessica Gadarova and Alice Kinsella. And... Jessica took the bronze. Again, the first ever individual medal in a World Gymnastics Championship. Oh, and Alice came fourth. And we did actually qualify another woman, but there's a rule that every team can only have a maximum of two gymnasts. Meanwhile, in the men, it was Jake Jarman, The relative youngster And Joe Fraser A positive veteran at I think he's 22 Jake had a fantastic competition On his six pieces of apparatus And finished fifth Totally unexpected But I'm afraid Joe had an absolute mare of a day If it could be fallen off Joe fell off it Still, he finished Did us proud And was a showman till the end After that It was on to the individual apparatus And wow, wow, wow Again Gold To Giovanni Regini Moran Of Great Britain In the floor competition Gold to Jessica Gadarova, yes her again, in the floor competition. And more incredibly, Jessica beat her twin sister Jennifer in the same competition. Just imagine that. It's not a housemate or a friend or even a relative, but it's your twin you are competing against. And well done to Courtney Tullock of Great Britain for taking the bronze in the rings. A shout out here to Rhys McClellan who took gold in the pommels for Ireland. The interview was incredible. The poor guy couldn't talk he stood with his hand with his eyes firmly shut and all he could do was sort of shake his head and nod his head and in the end he just had to go off and have a good old cry he was so unbelievably happy one thing i will also say about the world gymnastics championship is that because of the format in other words, everyone in theory, well no, in the team competitions, you don't actually have to have a team to put down a score to qualify for the individual rounds. So it was really quite heartwarming when in the men's vault, it was won by Armenia with a Ukrainian athlete in bronze. And I know in one of the other events There was a Croat So gymnastics is really no longer The domain of the Soviet bloc I will just tell you one bit flippantly There was an American gymnast Who was brought down to earth with a bump By her hairdo Because she was gaily doing backflips on the beam which is three inches wide, when her ribbon came off and dangled in front of her eyes. I mean, it could have been really bad. She did fall off, but she landed on her feet, fortunately. I don't think she'll be having that hairdo again. Anyway, moving on. Oh, no, one other thing. Great Britain finished third overall in the medal table. Wow, wow, wow. No more embarrassment about that single back somersault and keep everything crossed that you don't fall off. Right, now while we're saying how well Great Britain did, I'm going to bring it down a bit in size to England. Because England are doing rather well at the moment in three different World Championships With the Ovoid Ball and in the Union Code In other words the Rugby Union World Cup The Red Roses will play New Zealand on Saturday in the final having beaten Canada but if you're thinking of watching it live, set your alarm. I believe kickoff is at 6.30 in the morning. I shall be recording it. Now with the same odd-shaped ball and the same gender, but this time in league, England will play Papua New Guinea to cement their place in the semi-final This match will be on Wednesday so it will already have been played by the time you're listening to me babble away Same silly shape ball and code in other words rugby league and same gender but this time the wheelchair team They beat Spain and have now qualified for the semi-final And in the Rugby League Men's World Championship England will face Samoa in the semi-final on Saturday at 2.30 I can't cope with all of this Oh, and not to be outdone, the men proudly wearing their blue and red pyjamas, red tops, blue bottoms. England will face India in the semi-final of the T20 cricket, having beaten Sri Lanka. Note to England football team. Don't break the winning run in Qatar. You have been warned. And that was your sport.
1: That, I think, probably concludes Sarah's report on sport, which takes us very neatly on to Dave and your postbag.
0: This is Postbag. discussion.
4: Hello there and welcome to your postbag. We begin with a very welcome excerpt from a letter I received from Edwina, typed in John England's one-to-one computer sessions at the computer class at the Resource Centre that you are welcome to join. It's about going to a meeting in Peterborough, the home of Deafblind UK, Edwina once walked on the catwalk modelling wedding dresses including a beautiful gold one in aid of Deafblind UK and she also wrote a wonderful poetry book as well in aid of Deafblind UK. Edwina writes I received a letter from the company that my second carer works for It's based in Peterborough It was an invitation to a meeting Sylvia and I decided to go. It was an eye-opener to me. We arrived at 11.30, as it's a long drive to Peterborough, and we sat round a large table and cups of tea, introduced to several people, some were signing, and then a carvery meal followed, which was very tasty, and it was a big choice as well. The eye-opener part was this company only deal with deaf-blind people, so three-quarters were with their own interpreters signing. All those introduced to me had ushers like me, but they were learning their signing, ready for their later situation. It was all excellently arranged. Two speeches, which was very excellently uh, arranged with the loop system. Sylvia signed all that was being spoken during the speeches. It was brilliant. Then they asked, did anyone want to talk? It was on a stage with a microphone. Sylvia said I would and made me stand up. I duly did this. Hello, my name is Edwina. Once met, ne'er forgotten, and there was laughter. I would like to thank Debbie, the owner of the business, very, very much for arranging for us to meet, and of course the wonderful staff too. I come from Coventry, which is a historical place. I would like to introduce Sylvia, my interpreter, whom is standing beside me. She is wonderful, and she has enhanced and opened many doors for me. I hope that you all have a safe journey home after enjoying us all enjoying this special day. Thank you. Hmm, it reminds me of the Monday Club. I must come one day and give a talk. Oh, I did, did I say I was good at talking, if I got the chance, which made them laugh? I try to make someone smile every day if I can. I hope that you have smiled at this. Thank you, Edwina. We look forward to you coming to the Monday Club. And she does make people smile, doesn't she? And Graham Whale talks about somewhere that has a reputation for making you feel better. Graham argues that they ought to be doing that as you're paying them. It's interesting to hear that the Meriden Hospital, have I've got that
1: right, has been given uh, a pretty good score by the quality... Um, care commission um, it's on the Warsgrave hospital site I believe but I also believe it's actually a private hospital At least they see private patients there I think they do do national health as an overspill if the main hospital is uh, overloaded but essentially I think it is a private hospital and I would expect them to get good results if they're a private hospital um, so yeah a bit bemused by that
4: So, have you turned to private treatment at all? What's been your experience? Talking of hospitals, there's a voluntary organisation that specialises in cheering up hospital patients. And they're celebrating their 50th birthday. I once interviewed Coventry Hospital Radio volunteer Reg Yeoman who told the listeners a moving story of a man he went to see at the former Peabody Eye Hospital in Orsley.
5: Well, I think the nicest things is always the reaction of the patients. Now, being up here uh, this way, I live near Peabody Hospital, so Paybody Hospital was my area. You see, I, particularly one patient, he was in there for ages, first one eye, then the other, and he hadn't seen at all for over 20 years, absolutely blind for 20 years. He was there such a long time, I used to go and see him every week, and sometimes twice a week. I used to sit and have a chat, and I got to know him. And uh, he had this operation, he had the bandages round his eyes uh, for quite a while. And he still got the bandages on one day when I went there, and he said, "Oh, I know who that is, you know, recognizing my voice straight away, obviously." And he said, uh, and he went like that, how, pulled his bandage off his eyes. He said, "And now I can see the face that goes with it." That's absolutely marvelous. After twenty years, at uh, the first time, I could all I wept for him. You know, <laughs> it was great. So I said, "Oh, we've got to find a special record for, it, for this one, haven't we?" And he said, yes, so we, of course, we had, oh, what a beautiful morning, because he was sitting by the window, and, of course, the sun did what happened to be shining on the fields at Horsley, and I mean, it was a marvellous moment, that is.
0: This is CHBS.
4: Now, Coventry Hospital Radio did have a bit of a hiccup once when all the members left en masse, but then they went on to form community broadcasting services and the first Outlook was sent out in September 1976. An Outlook included a listeners' feedback spot called Postbag, unique apparently to all talking newspapers unless you know different. And here's the latest report in Postbag from Julia entitled "'You can't pull the wool over my eyes.' "'That's what Wendy the Warden said. "'When we went to the Gateway Club, "'we met a lady called Jane "'who talked about the history of knitting. "'She said, "'In the olden days, "'when my friend John was but a little tiddler, "'they mainly knitted socks "'because they had very cold feet. "'Jane knitted a tiger, "'and it was orange, brown, white and black.' and it was very fierce. She showed us lots of different wool, and you can even knit oven gloves and dishcloths from string. My friend John wants me to knit him a coconut cake for his 257th birthday. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'm not sure that he deserves one. I like knitting. I think I'll knit a new computer because mine is cream-crackered, Happy November everybody, I hope you're all well in by Gland. Julia, thank you, Julia. I love the name by Gland. Uh, anyway, Julia recently talked about going to Site Village near Meriden. Ishan Jia, host of VIP World Community, was talking about Site Village recently. thus moved to London when Rennie mentioned a global day in America dedicated to the white cane and their users. You
6: know, we have festivals like that, sort of like all over the place. Really, the main one is um, White Cane Day. And, and so we just celebrated that last Saturday. And, and you know, each, each organization and each city does sort of their own thing on that. Um, We don't have a blind village per se. No, that sounds like a really great
4: idea. The subject we were discussing on VIP World Community was festivals. What festivals do you remember and still celebrate? And talking of festivals please start sending in your christmas greetings into postbag nice and early so i can start compiling them for our special festive edition of outlook and here's a nice message from doreen hilton
3: staff and you give a lot
7: of information and um if we listen carefully which i do listen carefully i always have done And that's why, um,
6: you know, I always say keep up the
4: good work. Finally, it was suggested to me at the Monday Club that I read this poem out to you that I read for a speech and drama exam once on a course that Sheila encouraged me to join. She later encouraged me to help with Outlook. I am indebted to Sheila. Uh, Here is that poem, The Solitary Reaper by William Wordsworth. Behold her single in the field, Yon solitary Highland lass, Reaping and singing by herself. Stop here, or gently pass. Alone she cuts and binds the grain, And sings a melancholy strain. Oh, listen, for the vale profound Is overflowing with the sound. No nightingale did ever chaunt More welcome notes to weary bands of travellers In some shady haunt among Arabian sands. A voice so thrilling ne'er was heard In springtime from the cuckoo-bird Breaking the silence of the seas Among the furthest Hebrides. Will no one tell me what she sings? Perhaps the plaintive numbers flow From old and happy, Far off things and battles long ago, or is it some more humble lay, familiar matter of the day, some natural sorrow, loss or pain that has been and may be again? Whate'er the theme, the maiden sang as if her song could have no ending. I saw her singing at her work, and o'er the sickle bending. I listened, motionless and still, and. As I mounted up the hill, The music in my heart I bore, Long after it was heard no more. Thank you for your messages this week. Tell us of your favourite poem perhaps, And anything else you want to talk about. Bye for now.
7: This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag.
0: Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk Join in the discussion on
1: Postbag. Your postbag there with Dave, who always, of course, welcomes your comments and messages on our answer phone for inclusion in postbag. Just phone 02476 then option 5 for CBS. Now, this week, Margaret tells us about one of the oldest buildings in the city, that's Draper's Hall.
8: Draper's Hall was home to the Draper's Company, once one of the city's most powerful companies. In 1424, it was enacted that no person sell cloth except at the drapery. At the end of the 17th century, the cloth trade began to decline and continued to do so throughout the 18th century when silk weaving became dominant. The first draper's hall erected by the company in 1637 was a repository, a place of business. Described as a dark and gloomy structure, it was taken down in 1775 and a classic building with Tuscan pilasters was erected in its place. Unfortunately, this building had dry rot and was condemned in 1829. Before its demolition, the drapers engaged architects T. Rickman and H.W. Hutchinson's to design a Greek revival building with Ionic columns. This new hall's opening was celebrated with a ball on the 8th of November 1832. The building had no windows and relied on skylights to bring in light. More light was added in the 1890 when architect E. Burgess removed the two right-hand columns of the portico and inserted a window. The brick section was added around 1890. The hall's most interesting room is its ballroom with a painted musician's gallery, gilded mirrors and coved skylighted ceiling with decorative moulding in the Greek style. The hall was used as a lecture room and for the city's most prestigious balls. It had close association with the Coventry races, Balls were held here to start and end the racing season. It was also used for public meetings, dinners, plays and musical entertainments. The theatre, set up in the previous building, was known for its connections to acting royalty, the Kembles and the famed Sarah Siddons. In October 1939, the Draper's Company and Council were talking of demolishing Draper's for a new gallery and museum. It was said that, despite sentimental feelings respecting the old hall, it cannot be allowed to stand in the way of modern progress. That month its cellar became a public air raid shelter. Wartime posters still exist down there. It would seem that Draper's Hall has been uncared for since the 1960s. Private groups, have put forward schemes, but nothing happened. This included the Coventry Society, who campaigned for over 10 years to bring it back to use as a community centre and cloth museum, only to be turned down. Recent plans to turn it into a music arts festival didn't materialise, and at the time of the printing of the book, the hall had been acquired by the Freemasons, who will continue, it says, to allow the Draper's Company use of it. Now, I can update that working with the Prince's Foundation, Historic Coventry has been restoring the building and it has been repurposed and reinfigurated as a venue for music and for music education.
1: Draper's Hall, certainly one of Coventry's cherished old buildings. Last Saturday was, of course, Bonfire Night. I didn't know much about the origins of Firework Night uh, other than Guy Fawkes uh, was planning to blow up the Houses of Parliament. So I did a bit of research and found this article on the History website, which I recorded earlier. November the 5th, Guy Fawkes Day or Bonfire Night or Fireworks Night commemorates a failed assassination attempt from over 400 years ago. On the 5th of November in 1605, Guy Fawkes and a group of radical English Catholics tried to assassinate King James I by blowing up Parliament's House of Lords. The plot went awry, and all of the conspirators were executed. Soon after, Britons began to celebrate Fawkes' demise and the survival of their king by burning effigies, lighting bonfires and setting off fireworks, a tradition which is continued to this day. Catholicism in England was heavily repressed under Queen Elizabeth I, particularly after the Pope excommunicated her in 1570. During her reign, dozens of priests were put to death, and Catholics could not even legally celebrate Mass or be married according to their own rites. As a result, many Catholics had high hopes when King James I took the throne upon Elizabeth's death in 1603. James's wife, Anne, is believed to have previously converted to Catholicism and his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, Elizabeth's Catholic arch-rival prior to being executed. There were even rumours, inspired by his diplomatic overtures to the Pope, that James himself would become Catholic. It soon became clear, however, that James did not support religious tolerance for Catholics. In 1604, he publicly condemned Catholicism as a superstition ordered all Catholic priests to leave England and expressed concern that the number of Catholics was increasing. He also largely continued with the repressive policies of his predecessor, such as fines for those refusing to attend Protestant services. English Catholics had organised several failed conspiracies against Elizabeth, and these continued under James. In 1603, a few priests and laymen hatched the so-called By plot to kidnap James, only to be turned in by fellow Catholics. Another related conspiracy that year, known as the Main Plot, sought to kill James and install his cousin on the throne. Then, in May 1604, a handful of Catholic dissidents, Guy Fawkes, Robert Catesby, Tom Wintour, Jack Wright and Thomas Percy, met at the Duck and Drake Inn in London, where Catesby proposed a plan to blow out the Houses of Parliament with gunpowder. Afterwards, all five men purportedly swore an oath of secrecy upon a prayer Eight other conspirators would later join what became known as the Gunpowder Plot, but although Catesby was the ringleader, Fawkes has garnered most of the publicity over the past 400 plus years. Born in 1570 in York, Fawkes spent a decade fighting for Spain against Protestant rebels in the Spanish-controlled Netherlands. He also personally petitioned the King of Spain for help in starting an English rebellion against James. According to writings in the Spanish archives, Fawkes believed the English king was a heretic who would drive out Catholic subjects. Fawkes also apparently expressed strong anti-Scottish prejudices. By 1605, Fawkes was calling himself Guido rather than Guy. He also used the alias John Johnson while serving as caretaker of a cellar, located just below the House of Lords, that the plotters had leased in order to stockpile gunpowder. Under the plan, Fawkes would light a fuse on November 5th, 1605, during the opening of a new session of Parliament. James, his eldest son, the House of Lords and the House of Commons, would be blown sky high. In the meantime, as Fox escaped by boat across the River Thames, his fellow conspirators would start an uprising in the English Midlands, kidnap James's daughter Elizabeth, install her as a puppet queen, and eventually marry her off to a Catholic, thereby restoring the Catholic monarchy. On October 26, an anonymous letter advising a Catholic sympathiser to avoid the state opening of Parliament alerted the authorities to the existence of the plot. To this day, no one knows for sure who wrote the letter. Some historians have suggested that it, was, that it was fabricated and that the authorities already knew of the gunpowder plot, only letting it progress as an excuse to further crack down on Catholicism. Either way, a search party found Forks skulking in his cellar around midnight on November the 4th with matches in his pocket and 36 barrels of gunpowder stacked next to him. For the plot's failure could be blamed on the devil and not God. He was taken to the Tower of London and tortured upon the special order of King James. Soon after, his co-conspirators were likewise arrested, except for four, including Catesby, who died in a shootout with English troops. Fawkes and his surviving conspirators were all found guilty of high treason and sentenced to death in January 1606 by hanging, drawing and quartering. A Jesuit priest was also executed a few months later for his alleged involvement, even as new laws banned Catholics from voting in elections, practising law or serving in the military. In fact, Catholics were not fully emancipated in England until the 19th century. If you look further into the history of Bonflower Night, uh, you'll find that our local National Trust property, Coton Court, features quite prominently in the story. Also, recently, of course, over the last weekend in October, which is the tradition, we turned our clocks back one hour to Greenwich Mean Time. There's also always been a bit of controversy about changing the clocks forward and back every year, and Sheila found this article in the Sunday Times, written by Tom Carver and Ben Spencer, in which they question whether we should or should not change the clocks. Did you remember to change your clocks recently?
7: A mounting body of evidence suggests we should scrap British mean time because British summer time, meaning darker winter mornings and lighter evenings, could be better suited to our modern way of living. First, some biology and a bit of history. Our body clock or circadian rhythm synchronises our bodily functions to the rotation of the earth. This is regulated by the way the eye perceives light and dark. If we were left to our own devices, time would be aligned to the human body clock, and noon would always be when the sun was directly overhead, wherever we were. This was more or less the norm for millennia, until the creation of the railways, when national timetables required the creation of synchronised clocks. The Victorians introduced the concept of standard time. For the first time, midday might not be when the sun was at its highest. At the International Meridian Conference in 1884, time zones were agreed that spanned 15 lines of longitude around the Earth, or the distance the sun could travel in an hour. Greenwich was set as the zero line, although France refused to tow it and followed Paris time until 1911. In theory, it was a good compromise. Most people were living in time zones more or less aligned to the movement of the sun at their body clocks. Then the people started meddling. In spring 1916, Germany moved its clocks forward by an hour to decrease the use of electric lights in the evening and reduce the power burden during the First World War. The idea of daylight saving was born. Britain soon followed suit, and during the Second World War, to boost productivity we leapt two hours ahead during the summer. One bold Sunday Times article of 1960 even made the case for adopting triple summertime, a jump of three hours, meaning extra long evenings stretching well into night time. We should then require no artificial light for three months, wrote Captain S.W. Pack. In 1968, Howard Wilson's government began a three-year experiment. The clocks would stay on British summertime all year round. Traffic data suggested it led to a near reduction in deaths or serious injuries of 2,700, although drink-driving rules introduced in 1967 might also have had an effect. Parliament voted to end the experiment in 1971, yet for years the EU has been consulting on keeping the clocks consistent year-round. And with Britain in the middle of another energy crisis, something we should try to gain. People use more power in the early evening than the early morning by quite a significant degree, said Christopher Snowden, head of lifestyle economics at the Institute for Economic Affairs think tank. According to Adolf Foley, an engineering professor at Queen's University Belfast, households could save an average of £400 a year on electricity bills under the all-year-round British summertime. Moreover, not having to change the clocks might be better for our body clocks, according to Russell Foster, Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at Oxford University. Individuals are being forced out of bed and forced to be active an hour earlier than their internal circadian time, he writes in his book Lifetime. Studies have shown increased rates of irritability, less sleep, more daytime fatigue and greater depression in the days after the clocks change. Researchers have even found a 24% increase in heart attacks. The initial opposition to extending British summertime came from farmers. If sunrise were effectively moved forward from 8am to 9am they would lose an hour of light work. Yet today agriculture accounts for just 0.5% of Britain's GDP. Another issue is what happens in the northern reaches of the United Kingdom. In Lerwick, Shetland, the sun does not rise until after 9am at Christmas. Keeping British summertime all year round would mean darkness until 10am. On the plus side, in short supply in Shetland, whatever you do to the clocks, it would last until 4pm as opposed to
1: 3pm. So, have you got a view about changing the clocks? Let's know in post-bag. I'm sure we're all familiar with the actor and singer Michael Ball. Well, he's been captivated by the smell of the grease paint, roar of the crowd and the magic of theatre for as long as he can remember. And this article from my weekly magazine, read by Elaine, explains more.
2: I want to celebrate the magic of theatre. Over recent years, many familiar names have written novels. Richard and Judy, Alan Titchmarsh, Pam Rhodes, Anton Dubeck, Carol Kirkwood, Richard Osman and now there's Michael Ball with his book The Empire set in the world of theatre. From an article in My Weekly we learn that Michael Ball has been captivated by the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd and the magic of the theatre for as long as he can remember. I love the endless possibilities of what can happen in theatres. You can be taken to so many different worlds and transported out of your own life and into a whole new one. Michael's love of the theatre began when he was very young, and it was his close family who encouraged him on his path to stardom. My grandmother was always very supportive when I was younger, She gave me the confidence to get up and perform when I was growing up, but also taught me when to stop. Watching and listening to the great performers and films, going to the theatre, I just thought, wouldn't it be amazing to be part of that world? I remember going to see Jesus Christ Superstar with my dad when I was 12 and truly understanding the power of musical theatre. This was a rock musical telling a story we all know, but so differently, and it was just captivating. Indeed, Michael, who has been a star of musical theatre for over three decades, found inspiration in the theatre for one of his latest projects, his debut novel The Empire, which was published in October. Set in the 1920s, The Empire is the first in a planned series of books and follows the lives of those who work within the magical Empire Theatre and the family who own it. Michael loved the chance to let his imagination run wild. I love that I'm not limited in my creativity when I write. I'm in charge. I can have everything work out exactly as I want it to. I'm given free range to represent a world that I know so well. Michael decided on a historical setting for his novel. But what made him choose the 1920s? It was such an interesting decade. There was so much change going on in society as a whole and within the theatre. It was a hugely creative time. People felt freer and lighter once the war was over. And they wanted distraction after the appalling years they had lived through. For me, the theatre has always been there to entertain and to educate, to help people through difficult times. The history of theatre is fascinating as a whole, but for me it's the 1920s and the whole post-World One era. that is the birthplace of theatre as we know it now. Michael admits he drew on many of his own experiences, both good and bad, when he was writing the book. The best advice I was given was, write what you know. This is a world I know, and lots of things in the book actually happen to me, and are based on personal experiences. In one scene in the opening chapter, one of the main characters, Jack Treadwell, has a near miss with an errant sandbag. Has Michael ever had any theatre mishaps? Hundreds, he says. Literally loads. The worst one was when I was in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and it's when we're in a car being chased by the Baron and Baroness of Bomburst, who are in a huge boat flying at us. This is all about 20 feet off the stage. For some reason the boat started tilting towards us and looked like it was going to fall on us. And then tilted the other way and nearly took out a stage hand. The whole show had to end up being cancelled, and of course, it was the night when Prince Charles and Princess Diana were in the audience. There was also a moment when I was in The Phantom of the Opera, and I have to jump from the stage into a little hole in the floor as if I'm jumping into water. But I landed really badly and again nearly injured a stagehand. The stage can be a dangerous place. With the Empire sure to be a big hit with readers and listeners, Michael is just about to begin working on the second book in the series. Bringing all of my favourite cast and crew from the Empire back into my life will be a joy. When you get to the end of the Empire you'll find that the characters have been left in a precarious position. The Empire by Michael Ball is out now in audiobook.
1: Michael's book The Empire is available in audiobooks, uh, where you can learn all about his love for the theatre. Cynthia Townsend, of course, has written many short stories, which you've heard before, uh, which Ali has read for us, and this time we're going to hear about finding a gem.
9: No one could have been prouder of herself than Josie when she finally signed on the dotted line to buy her first house. Two miles out of Birmingham city centre, this little two-up, two-down terrace was ideal for work and ideal for the city. It had a massive playing field at the back, which was occupied by the local rugby team every other Saturday, and at the bottom of the road ran the River Ray, along which was a nice walk that took you all the way to the park. Josie had been saving hard to get the deposit together, and because the owner wanted a quick no-chain sale, she negotiated a price drop of an extra two and a half thousand. However, Josie felt really sorry for the current occupier of the house. Her name was Maud. She was in her late 80s, She loved a little house, but it was her daughter who wanted the sale, as the proceeds were going to be put towards Maud's granddaughter through university. When Josie went to the house to do some measuring for curtains, she could tell that Maud had mixed feelings about leaving. Yes, she was going to be living with her daughter in her own granny flat, but her daughter lived in the country with only a limited bus service, and it was a good 30 miles away from Birmingham and all of Maud's friends. "'Why didn't you tell your daughter that you wanted to stay in your house?' said Josie. "'You don't know my daughter,' said Maud. "'When she wants something, she doesn't give up until she gets it. "'And I'm too tired to keep fighting her.' It was so unfair. Maud was such a lovely lady and had a nice circle of friends who she went to lunch club with on a Thursday, Whist drive on a Monday, bingo on Tuesdays and Fridays. In fact, she was having a great social life.' She was going to find it hard to give all this up and go and live in the country in an extension in the middle of nowhere not even join the family for meals as her flat was self-contained. My daughter told me that she couldn't afford to put my granddaughter through university unless I sold the house. What choice did I have? Josie felt so bad that she was buying the house and offered to drop out of the sale. No dear, don't do that. It's not your fault. Besides, I want you to have it and I hope you'll be happy here, as I have been over the past 50 years. Every day after work, Josie would go down to Maud's and help her with the packing. Maud's daughter was too busy to help, so it's left to Maud to sort herself out. Josie didn't think that was fair, and offered to help her pack a crockery and all the other delicate items, wrap them in paper and stack them carefully in boxes. Josie noticed a small crystal cat "'which took pride of place on Maud's sideboard. "'Oh, how lovely is this?' said Josie. "'Have you got the box it came in? "'I wouldn't want it to get broken.' "'Maud went into the other room "'and came back with a tatty old red box. "'This is the box it came in. "'It was given to me by my husband Bert "'as an engagement present. "'It's over sixty years old.' "'Josie carefully placed the crystal cat in the box "'and put it on top of the other ornaments "'and wrapped it in some cloth to give it extra protection.' Because this was going to be Josie's first house, she hardly had anything to put in it, so Maud said that she'd leave her the cooker, the fridge freezer and some of the cupboards. Josie didn't really want them as they were ancient, but she thought it would only be extra hassle for Maud to get rid of them, so thanked her and graciously accepted. A few days later, when Josie was at Maud's doing some more packing, Maud's daughter turned up to take some of the boxes to her house and asked for a quiet word of Josie. Um, I gather mum has given you some furniture and appliances. Well, we'll want paying for them. Shall we say four hundred pounds? Josie was taken aback. She didn't even want the furniture or the appliances. She only said she'd have them so Maud didn't have the hassle of getting rid of them. So she didn't see why she should pay for something she didn't even want. Um I'm sorry, said Josie, but I don't actually want the furniture. I only said I'd have it to save Maud the hassle of getting rid of it. You're more than welcome to it, and I expect you to have it all taken away before I move into the house. That shut Maud's daughter up sharpish. Oh, well, I'm sure you can have them if you really want them. No, it's okay, said Josie. Please make sure that they're gone before I move in. I would hate you to be out of pocket. Josie knew that it would cost Maud's daughter to get rid of them. She was so angry to be used like that. When Maud's daughter left... Maud came back into the room and said how proud she was of Josie to standing her ground. "'I'm so sorry, my dear. I had no idea she was going to ask you for money. I don't want anything for them, and now she's going to have to pay to have them taken away. She won't like that,' Maud said with an evil twinkle in her eye. When moving day came, Josie turned up at Maud's house with a bunch of flowers and a box of chocolates to wish her well in her new home. You could tell Maud was upset.' as she kept touching the walls as if she was trying to relive memories in her mind of her and her late husband. It was so sad to see her getting upset at the thought of never seeing her little house again. You know, you're more than welcome here any time you want to come and visit, Josie said. If you want to come on a day when you're seeing your friends for the lunch club, then make a day of it and come here and we can sit in the garden. Maud held Josie's hand and thanked her, but didn't think her daughter would bring her over as it's far too late far for her to come on the bus. When Maud's daughter turned up with a large estate car and packed the last of Maud's stuff, she hardly said a word to Josie. I think she was still smarting from the £400 bill she had to pay for clearing the house of all the stuff that Josie didn't want. Come on, Mother, say your goodbyes and be quick about it. We don't want to get caught in the lunchtime traffic. Maud gave Josie a hug and said, Look after the house and make your own memories, dear. "'I know you'll be happy here. It's a happy house.' And off she went with tears in her eyes as a car drove off up the road. With the keys to her house in her hand, Josie shut the door behind her and waited in for the few bits of furniture she'd bought to be delivered. She didn't want to fill it as there was lots of work to do on the house and she wanted to do it room by room. Over the next few weeks and months, the house was slowly looking more like that of a young woman's abode rather than an old lady's house. She had central heating put in, got rid of the old copper boiler, and gave a makeover to the galley kitchen. The colour scheme was green and white, with a really nice green and white tiled floor effect lino, a green gas cooker, and a green and white utensils and appliances. It looked a bit like a fifties diner with stools at the breakfast bar on one side of the kitchen. However, there was something bothering Josie about the front room downstairs. There was a chimney breast, but no fire. Instead, there was a false wall that was made from wood and papered over. Josie decided she wanted to see what was behind the false wall. The front room was going to be redecorated anyway, and as she was going to look at getting the gas fire fitted, she needed to know what space she had to play with. Stripping the wallpaper off was easy, as she had a large hammer and a crowbar to prise the wood off the chimney breast. It took her a good hour to remove it, but when she did, she couldn't believe her eyes. Behind the false wall was the most beautiful wrought iron fireplace you ever saw. It had floral tiles running down either side of the fireplace and a hearth that was shiny red brick small tiles. The fireplace itself was black iron with an ash pan underneath and a grill at the front. It looked as good as it must have done when the house was first built in the early Edwardian era. Josie had found her focal point feature for the front room and it was absolutely beautiful. She started buying stuff to populate the room that would show it off in all its glory. Once Josie had got the house to how she wanted, she decided to throw a small party. It was only a little house, so it'd have to be a select group of people, but Josie knew straight away who the star guest was going to be, the previous owner, Maud. They kept in touch and regularly wrote to each other, and Maud even called a few times for a chat when she was left on her own, when the daughter and the family went on the holidays, without Maud. Josie sent an invite in the post with the offer of a lift there and back, as one of her friends had offered to go and pick her up, as she knew it was going to be left to Maud's daughter she wouldn't have bought her at all. After three days, Josie got a call. It was Maud's daughter. Is that Josie? Maud's daughter here. Um, thank you for the invite, but I'm afraid Mother won't be able to make it. Oh, that's a shame. She's not feeling too well. Um, You could say that, said Maud's daughter. She died last week. The funeral's today. She did leave you something, which I'll pop round when I'm next in the area, but I don't know when that'll be. What a cold-hearted woman, Josie thought to herself. She'd forced Maud to sell the house, which broke her heart and she showed no sign of emotion when she talked of Maud's passing. I'm so sorry, said Josie. Maud was a lovely lady, and I'm very sad she won't be able to come and see what I've done to the house, as I'm sure she would have approved. Mm. well, I guess she'll never know. Got a dash. Several months passed, and one Saturday afternoon Josie got a knock at the door. It was Maud's daughter. Oh, hello, said Josie. How lovely to see you. Would you like to come in? No, I'm not stopping. I was just in the air and I thought I'd bring that thing that mother wants used to have. And she handed over a small, tatty red box, the same one that the crystal cat was placed in. I hate cats, said Maud's daughter. You're welcome to it. Bye. And off she went. Josie took the cat out of the box and put it pride of place on the mantelpiece of the Edwardian fireplace. She poured herself a glass of wine and raised the glass to the crystal cat and said, Welcome home, Maud. I hope you like what I've done with the place. And I promise you, I will be happy here.
1: You'll recall Dave has previously done an interview with uh, Karen Bucknell, uh, who survived cancer and a brain tumour. Dave caught up with Karen again uh, to talk about her life since then, becoming an inspirational beauty queen, a cover girl and a model. And this is the first half of that two-part interview.
4: Hello, uh, Karen. We're speaking to Karen Bognol. So how are you these days? Um, I'm really
6: well. and very busy. Always something happening, but I'm, I'm good. Thank
4: you for asking. Okay. Uh, can you take us back to when we first met, so, the Covenant Cathedral Ruins?
6: That's right. Gosh, it seems ages ago it was, I think... 2017? Yeah. It was when um, William and Kate uh, came to Coventry um, to look around the university and around the cathedral and the ruins. Um, and that's when Kate was heavily pregnant with um,
4: that was it <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah a wonderful occasion and uh, you, you you had a few words about uh, <laughs> William and Kate, but you also had a few words about the fact you were studying at Coventry university
6: that's right that's what I we was said. um I was a student at Coventry University doing um, sociology and it's been so long ago that that now um, I actually graduated from Coventry University and then I went on to journalism college and graduated from journalism college last year.
4: Wow, Uh, so when you were at Coventry University you had help with being partially sighted didn't you?
6: That's the. Um, I was diagnosed at the time when I was at uni with ocular myasthenia, which causes um, double vision, um, problems with the eyes not working properly, um, and also um, a lazy eye. But now they think it was probably also linked to my benign brain tumour that I had. But I had lots of help. Um, I had a special computer that used to talk to me. I called it Stephen, after Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking. Um, I used to have, um, like, special peach um, plastic overlays over books to stop the words all jumbling about. And they used to let me sit at the front of the class so that I could see the board correctly, because I can't see... If I don't sit at the front... And I sit in the middle or the back. um, I just see, like, two people's heads.
4: Yes, okay. (laughs) And that's to to do with the brain tumour, is it?
6: At the time they said ocular myasthenia, but it's one of those things they'll never know. Because they're now saying it could be a mixture of ocular myasthenia and the benign brain tumour. Yes, but... But they just don't know, to be honest.
4: Okay, uh, since we met, you decided to become a radio journalist after uh, being interviewed by me, which is wonderful. I
6: (laughs) I did, so you inspired me to go into radio journalism and radio presenting. And then what happened, I won um, a competition with ITV News to represent ITV Central News and go on a local news training
4: course. <laughs> so how did the broadcasting go?
6: It went really well and um, I still work with ITV Central News. Wow. Part of their inclusion and diversity panel and because I've moved down to Gloucestershire If I have any local news stories, I let them know. Um, And also, because Gloucestershire covers ITV West Country, I let them know if there's any local news stories. So really, I now have two regions that I can do leads, and then uh, the journalist uh, takes over. And also, they like stories about inclusion and diversity. Yes. Um, And at the moment, they're really hot on anything linked with hidden disabilities
4: and disability, right, and then, and you joined uh, Gloucester Radio shortly.
9: Yeah, I am
6: It's um, it's actually called Made in Matson (laughs) Um, It's a big community um, Sort of Just outside Gloucester And um, It's very similar to, say, your family um, That you have In in Coventry, Tile Hill Very similar to that area And they have their own local radio station And um, I am hoping To go into podcasting and also maybe one day do some hospital radio work. Good, excellent, excellent.
1: So that uh, with the interview with Karen Bucknell brings us to the end of this week's edition of Outlook. So with that it's goodbye from me, Nigel Hewin.